Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey guys, so the episode you're about to listen to is almost four years in the making. The original main interview was recorded almost three and a half years ago. But since we were going to release this episode now, we wanted to check in on our wonderful guest, Chris Smith, to get an update on some life and job changes that happened in between when we recorded, as well as hear how his daughter Avery is doing and how their amazing community all tackled childhood cancer together. Take a listen. Hey, Squash fans, this is a little different one here because I am diving back into the archives and bringing one of my favorite guests back onto the show, and that's Chris Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. It's great to be back. So this interview that almost didn't see the light of day, which is on my side because of uh, life hitting me in the face, I'm so glad to bring it back in. And before we put it on air, I thought it was really important to kind of get where are you now? Because this interview we did was recorded almost three and a half years ago. So before we jump into the interview for the listener, let's get a quick update on you're still at St. Paul's School, but you have a new role. Tell us about the new role you have. Yeah, so I am now the associate athletic director here after about seven years of working in the admission office as an admission officer. And it's just been a real easy transition over here to the athletics. The admission office is an extension of athletics and athletics is an extension of admission. And we are always doing work for one another. And there's just a lot of just admission office skills that I'm able to bring over here and, and help coach the coaches and be sort of better recruiters. And also just trying to advocate for any program within St. Paul's and their pro and their recruits and kids that they're talking to, but also just pouring in all of my passion and energy to sport in general, not just squash. And a lot of that's been in the form of recently just getting us fully operational with streaming, which we still we're welcoming visitors now, but last year we were in session, but no one could come to visit campus. So being able to stream everything, not just varsity, but JV and club and get the kids to their homes via a camera was so important. So it's been a lot of fun just kind of creating ways to stream from a field that doesn't have Wi-Fi and or Ethernet or power and troubleshooting that just to 
with the mission and the goal to bring the kids to their parents. And we have kids from all over the world too. So it's not just a COVID thing. We want to be able to use technology to bring the kids home. So that's been a lot of fun, but figuring out why scoreboards don't work, figuring out how to paint fields and make them look really cool. It's just enhancing everything with new energy and new ideas in a department that's had people working here for a long time. It's been a real uh, powerful move for me. I'm really excited. Well, I think that will certainly come through in the interview that you're about to hear that you have just been um, always trying to embrace technology and how can we best use that. And so it sounds like turning your campus into basically a mobile broadcast <laughs> unit is exciting and we could almost do a whole interview on yeah, that. Right. right. But along yeah, those lines of your passion of sports, you've also added some diplomas to your resume. And so give the top line of what diploma you added. Yeah. Right after our interview in, in 2018, I've completed my master's of sports leadership from Northeastern. And it was sort of a hybrid online and in-person program before we even knew what the term hybrid and online learning really was. But we've learned that you can do that work remotely. But um, it was a, a fantastic program. I think it's really given me the skills needed to, especially now in this new job, but also just like classes, developing your leadership capability and sports media relations and uh, you know, bystander strategies for prevention of gender-based violence, like really important stuff and classes that I, I like feel like Neo in the matrix. I just was installed like all these new skills and talents I didn't think I'd ever have. And I'm using them every day here in my new role. It's amazing. And I got a small taste of it from uh, you sharing what you were learning. And it sounded really exciting. And I'm pretty jealous. But didn't you also have kind of like a surreal moment? Because I know you love the Red Sox. And what was the experience you had with the Red Sox? Yeah, part of the Northeastern in-person program was going over to Fenway Park and sitting in, in the executive suites and meeting with the upper management of the Red Sox and learning about how they look to craft an organization and, and build the team and the coaching staff, but also the people who work at the park and the ticket sales and vendors. And so they gave us their whole theory on how to create this amazing program and then some, summed it all up by saying, the the only way all this works is if you have David Ortiz in your organization. <laughs> so, well, there goes there goes my dream of <laughs> building a program like the Red Sox if you don't have David Ortiz. So, speaking of building a great sports program, what the listeners about to hear has a little bit of a dated information with the boys team being top five in the country. So, tell us where is your team and program now? Yeah. So after that interview, we went to nationals and I think we were six or eight seed or something like that. And we ended up finishing fifth that year in division one on the boys side and the girls finished right out of the top 16 in the top of D2. And, and part of the interview, we talked a little bit about the, how at the time us squash would allow multiple teams from the same school to be in this, in division one. So Agnes Irwin or Greenwich, their B teams or their JV teams were better than a lot of varsities and rightfully so, but they were allowed in that tournament. So a lot of schools that were in that D2 range were always kind of like, hey, you don't get two cracks at, at winning a trophy. But uh, that year was great. It was one of the highest and um, best finishes on both sides. But then 
the next year, both teams rocketed even higher, which was a lot of fun to be a part of. The boys lost in the national semifinals 4-3 to Haverford with a chance to go to the national championship game. Wow. And it was two all in the fifth or two, two all in the last match on. And that was all without our number one player who got a concussion that week. And we were there, right? We all would play this one back. Like we had built it. We had a squad that we thought could get to the national title game. And even without our best player, the team played so well and upset some teams to get to that point. So we were with a top four finish. <laughs> we were pretty excited. And the girls that year finished 10th, I believe. That's right. In division one. So it, it was a wonderful run. And then fast forward a couple of years, we didn't compete last year. There was, uh, there was nothing. We practiced every day here. We were in, lucky to be in person here at a, a boarding school, but now they're all brand new kids. No one on the team now was part of that 2019 run. So we, uh, and we haven't seen anyone in uniform since March of 2020 and it's new. It's exciting. We have a whole new group of kids, some amazing players that have uh, come and refilled the rosters. And I can't wait to get these balls uh, in the air with, with this season. And the, the kids are itching to compete and travel and get on the road and get to the new Specter Center and, and compete against our rivals. So there's a lot of energy right now in the program. And, and there's a lot of new kids that no one's seen yet. Their own teammates don't even know what their levels are yet. So they're starting to figure out, they're starting to hit a little bit informally, but we're ready for that November 15 midnight madness when we can officially get going. Well, that's great to get kind of the high level update from where this conversation last touched on. And we'd just like to thank you for your time. And we hope you enjoy listening to a little bit of an archive uh, dig out. Now take a listen to our original interview. Hey there, Squash fans. We are very excited to share with you the guest for today. He is calling in from Concord, New Hampshire at St. Paul's Boarding School, and it's Chris Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Connor. It's a, it's a big honor to be here. Well, just to give some context quickly for the listeners, you and I actually go back a long way. I'm almost uh, two decades at this point, and we've overlapped on a few projects, but I just want to quickly read some of the other organizations that you've been involved with, and that is Urban Squash with Squash Busters. You have coached and managed Team USA. You've coached at the university level with institutions like Northeastern, Bates, and even Harvard. You've been a tournament director of the World Junior Championships. You've been a teaching professional in Boston at the Union Boat Club, and now you're at St. Paul's School. So my question is, what drew you to shift over to be a part of uh, St. Paul's? It's a, it's a great question, and I think if you look at the, the places that you listed in that intro, the big outlier is the Union Boat Club, which is a wonderful place where I spent uh, four years as the head pro there. It didn't have the connection to youth in an educational environment the way the, the other organizations and teams that I worked with did. And as much as I love the Union Boat Club, and it's such a unique place, I recommend anyone who has an opportunity to check it out, definitely do it. It was lacking my ability to really go deep and make an impact on people's lives off court. And a current faculty member at St. Paul's was my kind of mentor, advisor, 
at Tabor. He is the director of college advising at St. Paul's. We reconnected when I was recruiting a very good player named Will Ahmed out of St. Paul's to Harvard. We reconnected and kind of jokingly, I said, hey, one day it'd be great if you could hook me up with an amazing job like this. And he's like, don't ever kid like that. And call me when you're ready. And so <laughs> I, I made a call and said, I know I was kind of tongue in cheek saying, hook me up with a sweet job, but I'm really interested. And he invited me up. I spent a couple of days. It's an hour north of Boston, so it was very easy. He spent a couple of days with his teams. He was coaching the teams at St. Paul's. I had a couple of lunches, meetings with various people on campus. And they said, we like you a lot, Chris. And if there's a job in a couple of years, we'll give you a call. And we hope you, you give us a shot. A couple of days later, I get an email saying, you need to come up for your interview. We think we found something. And it was pretty fast moving from there. And I fell in love with the the school immediately and came running home to chat with my wife, Caitlin. And she didn't go to boarding school. I did. I knew what the world was going to be like. She stepped one foot on campus and any sense of reluctancy went away when she saw what kind of special environment St. Paul's is. Beyond being the director of squash at St. Paul's and, and running the teams there, you also work in the admissions office. And you've had both experience now with working with the high school admissions process and the college process. So I'd like to start off talking a little bit about what's been the insight or experiences you've learned now being on the high school squash and how you help your students go through that process. Yeah, the the big difference with the college admission side and my experience with that was was as a, a recruiting coach. And you can pretty much assume that everyone wants to go to college and you know when they're graduating and you can just reach out to them and contact them. Prep school admission and, and recruiting is a lot different because you don't know who is thinking about looking at these schools. So it's very reactionary. They put their hand up, they say, hey, I'm I'm coming to visit. I'm a squash player from New York City, and then I react and react big <laughs> and uh, line up a kind of a college style admission visit. And that's great because I'm a coach on campus, but I also work in the admission office, so I have that ability. My job is to be that person for, in this case, the squasher group. But my job also is to be that person for oboe players and ballet dancers and a kid who might not have a, a sport or a music love or interest yet, and is trying to figure out who they are and what they're interested in. So I have to represent the greater needs of the school and sell this great product and tell them all about what their life would be like here. So it, it is very reactionary, and there's a, a wonderful product here at St. Paul's to talk about, and I love talking about it, regardless if they're a squash player or not. So... Chris, you're now in your fourth year at St. Paul's, and I'd love for you to just kind of tell us a story about perhaps one of the kids that you helped recruit to get into St. Paul's and what that experience was like for yourself and for the student. I inherited two great programs here when I got here. The the girls program, and I, I should back up and say I do coach both teams. I, I brought a college model to prep school squash coaching, which has historically been there's a, a boys coach and a separate girls coach and they kind of operate 
somewhat together in the same building, but still very separate. I brought that dual coach approach here, and it's been great. So when I arrived, the girls team had just come off a top eight national finish at high school nationals. We're very, very strong, graduated a lot of people, and I inherited a, a rebuilding program. And the boys team had come off a couple of strong runs through the, the Division Two of nationals and, and uh, good top 16 finishes in New England and had a, had a young team with a really good number one, Henry Parkhurst, who's now uh, at Princeton and playing in their lineup. And so our, our first year was, you know, a lot of trying to help the teams improve, but also, uh, you know, encore, but also, all right, how do I do this prep school recruiting thing? Because unlike college recruiting, I don't know who wants to go to prep school. And in college, you know who wants to go to college because everyone pretty much wants to go to college. And you, you know when they graduate and you, and you know how to get in touch with them because they probably already reached out to you or it's very easy to get their address and phone number and email. So prep school recruiting being very reactionary, I was putting a lot of feelers out to friends in the game all over the place just saying, hey, I'm, here's where I'm at. This is a great school. If you hear of anyone that is interested in applying or leaving their home and, and wants to play squash at a great school, let me know. Tell them about me and have them get in touch with me. And so I was doing that in the great neighborhoods and communities of squash in our country. And one of the people I reached out to was Gilly Lane. And I got a hit from the Gilly Connection. And one of the uh, kids that he was working with in Philly, Brian Cowie, reached out to me and a quick look up on, on U.S. Squash. You find out his rating, you figure out, oh, it, yeah, he's going to play high for me. I need to talk with him. And the, at the same time, the Cowie family is looking at all the boarding schools in New England and a very talented kid, great, smart, wonderful family. And I was now <laughs> in it with uh, competing against all the great schools in New England for him the same way that you would be coaching at, at an Ivy League school, all the, all the schools want this kid. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think Gilly and my connections in Philly played a big role because everyone down there was saying, yeah, this Chris Smith is a great guy. He's going to do wonderful things for your son, Brian, but he's really going to be in Brian's life in squash and out of squash season. And that's how I position myself with every family I talk to is I'm in it just for the the experience of working with your kids in a holistic approach. And yes, the squash is very important and we're going to crush it on the squash court. But this is going to be about off-court leadership and uh, character development. And I'll be there if he needs, not for the chemistry extra help, but I'll be there for, you know, anything going on in his life that he needs to talk to me about. And so Brian came and then so did two other really good players who came in as freshmen, all three of them together, and they're currently juniors, and they're monsters for prep school squash. They are, they've powered our team to high levels, and, and more kids followed them the, the next year. And so I think my first year, the boys' team was, I think, in the 30s nationally, Division Three at Nationals. And the next year, we're in the top of Division Two. So this was Brian and his two classmates. First year, we finished in the we lost in the finals of Division Two. So that's like a, a six, fifteen, fourteen place jump at nationals. And now as juniors, 
with some help with some with two more recruiting classes. Where we'll find out tomorrow where we are seated for nationals, which is in two weeks from you and I talking right now. And we're I think we're a five eight seed in Division One. So we're looking wow. at like a thirty place swing. But I I really go back to, and I love all these kids. And I, I hope they're still listening. They listen to me a lot, so maybe they turned off the podcast already. <laughs> but I I love all of them dearly. But Brian was kind of the the first, and, and now he's a junior and he's a captain for the team, and he's undefeated at the number four slot on our very deep team. And more importantly, he's crushing it academically and is a great college applicant. No matter where he wants to find that great fit to go, he will be a great teammate. He will be a great student. But he's done everything the way that I thought he would when I first met him when he was in eighth grade. And here we are. And I I owe a lot of credit to him, but also to you know, to Gilly and also to being a good guy that over the years has treated everyone with respect and poured everything I can into the sport. And I think that kind of stuff pays off down the road. And it did with Brian and with every other boy and girl who's come here with squash as their hook. Well, that's that's a pretty significant jump to get the boys program up to where the girls were at that time back when you, you took it over. And how are the girls doing? The, the girls have had a similar path and upward movement. And I never let anyone compare the two side by side because that's not fair because both are doing great. But the girls were, after that great year they had where they finished in the top eight the year before I got there, were in Division Three at Nationals and now are looking at, I think, a 1-4 seed, 1-4 through four seed at Nationals in the in Division Two, And they're knocking on the door of Division One. And to be honest, and no disrespect to the wonderful high school national tournament, but the B teams and JV teams, if they're good enough, can be ranked ahead of other varsity teams. So Greenwich and Agnes Irwin and on the boys' side, historically Brunswick and Haverford, who have very deep teams, those, the number eight through 14 is a B team. They could mm-hmm. be better than a lot of varsities. So there's two B teams on in the girls' division one rankings that to be fair pushed us out and as a school we're in division one but yes those teams are very deep and yeah they would beat a lot of varsity teams and do beat a lot of varsity teams but nowhere else in sport do do you get to enter two teams into a a tournament to for the same trophy the patriots practice squad doesn't get two shots Uh, they don't get to play in the in the nfl playoffs even though they might be able to win some games it's a little far-fetched, but I think you know what my, my point is there. The girls, the girls have done great, and, and we've had similar stories with recruits, as I mentioned about Brian. And, there's, and the great, here's the cool thing. There's not one senior on either team. And I keep telling them I want to do great things now. But they're all like, oh, we're going to be so good when we're seniors. Like, no, no, no. Like, now is when we, <laughs> when we want to be great, like, when we worry about next year later. Well, and just to give some quick context, what you're talking about with the, the high school team championships, and we can compare it to college squash, which you're only allowed to field one team per school and at the high school team championships. And I think this was more of a growth strategy in the beginning. And, and it's probably at the breaking point, I would forecast in the next few years, where same schools can field multiple teams from varsity, JV to thirds, just depending. And yeah, I think that's a really good point you bring up in terms of what is the impact and ramifications on programs and how should that be addressed? Which actually 
I do want to get to yep. uh, with your role within New England squash. But before we move on, like you said, and we are focusing a little bit via the squash angle because that's the squash podcast, but how do you talk to a family that is trying to potentially decide between keeping their player close to home and, and going to the training at the club that they normally do and playing the junior circuit versus going to a prep school environment? And how do you address that with a parent? Yeah, for, for St. Paul's, we're one of the more northernmost schools. We're, we're far from New York City. We're not that far from Boston, but families in the the pockets of squash playing communities that we all know have to drive past a lot of schools to get to St. Paul's. So I, I, I have a tough job of trying to convince someone from Hartford or Greenwich or Philadelphia and even Boston, where there's a ton of great local day options for families and they can stay home and families want to be together. No one wants to send their kid away, but they can stay home. They can go to a great school, play on those teams at their school, play multiple sports, maybe not have Saturday classes the way St. Paul's does and train and train at a club and play the junior circuit. So it's a hard sell for me in Concord, New Hampshire, but it's also a hard sell for a lot of private boarding schools who have day students as well. So a lot of the prep schools have kind of changed their approach, and not just for squash. I think for a lot of sports and uh, and for other extracurriculars too, to be fair. We have a student, for example, who travels to Boston every Saturday and Sunday to uh, play in a, a symphony orchestra down there. So it's not just athletics. And the schools have adapted. We are letting, and not just St. Paul's, all schools are doing some level of this. We're letting kids identify what sport or what activity is their main thing. And, and we're trying to support them, but also educating them on the importance of doing multiple sports or not playing something for an entire you know, year round. And, and that's hard for a lot of families to buy into. But we are letting kids miss school for tournaments. We are some schools, not St. Paul's. And I think a lot of this because I'm here, but a lot of schools are letting outside coaches come in and use their courts and, and work with their squash players during the day or, or even run the prep school practices. And these are all great things. I don't have an issue with how any school does it. I think the more you can give kids at these schools, the better. It's better for the whole game if my competitors are training and bringing people in to work with their kids. So each school does it a little differently, and that's when the families have to do some research and talk to different coaches and figure out, okay, if do I have to play a fall sport or can I do the general fitness program and work out and play squash? When are the squash courts open? How many weekends can I sign out for? And at St. Paul's, we, we've got a very open system where it's very very simple to leave campus. And if you have to miss some commitments and classes, okay, there's a certain number of those we don't want you to miss, and but it's okay to miss some. And uh, it's working. And we have a, a couple of JCT-level kids here at St. Paul's who have not missed a JCT tournament this season, and they are at school in Concord, New Hampshire. Like that, a couple years ago, I was saying, JCT kids are never coming here. And they're here. And I, I think they're seeing that it is actually beneficial to them to be here and, and they can keep their training up and they can travel where there's 
we're 15 minutes from Manchester Airport, or an hour to, to Logan, and it's actually quite simple to do it. You just have to kind of get past that first layer of thinking, which is, you know, if you go away to boarding school, you're not going to get any better at squash, or, or you won't be able to play tournaments, and that's how you improve. And I don't agree with that. I think there's some validity to that feeling, but more and more prep schools are developing and fostering great players and getting them ready for the next level, both on court and off. And the colleges and the college coaches are looking at the prep schools, I think, more than ever because they know that these kids are getting that team experience. They're they're well-rounded. And um, maybe they're not so battle-tested and tired from the tournament scene that they actually have had some breaks and you know had to put the racket down and, and play lacrosse or something else. You, I mean, you, you touch on so many great points there. One thing I want to say just for those listeners who aren't familiar with all the lingo in, in junior squash, JCT basically indicates you're, you have to be a top 32 player in, in the rankings. And actually, probably you're closer in the top 20, top 16. So that's impressive to see players of those caliber really considering prep school squash. And as you were talking, what this kind of reminded me of is the perception of high caliber players that were on the tour for the professional squash considering playing college squash. And it sounds like that's kind of mirroring that path. But that used to be a significant question for athletes, and I'm speaking more internationally, whether they should come to the U.S. to come play college squash and they'd have to choose education versus professional squash. I think that's no longer the case. I mean, college squash, the caliber has risen so high. And so it sounds like from what you're saying that is now trickling down to the prep school level. Absolutely. And there are a lot of international kids all over the the prep school ranks right now. and, And not one program has them all. They are dotted all over New England and at, at our New England Prep School Championships in the end of February, there are a, a number of high-level, already at the college-level players who are you know, sophomores and junior international kids who are here. They want the college experience. They want to go to college, and, and this is a great step for them. And that championship weekend in the, the top 16A division is at Choate. I know that, that there will be some college representation there if their schedules allow because the, their caliber of those players are so high. And even in the, the second tier of the New England boarding school ranks, the Division B of New England, there might not be as deep and strong of teams, but those schools also have some amazing number one players who will play in college. We will see them in college lineups. And that's another great reason why going to a boarding school is, is actually, and playing squash is actually really appealing because you're inheriting a team of practice partners and, and you're inheriting 10 courts, five minutes walk from your dorm that are open whenever you want. There's no booking, there's no wait. And here you go, let's go train. And that's what I do. I try to get our teams in the mindset of using each other to improve. And I teach them how to drill. I teach them how to solo and not have to rely on a hitting, a, a hitting coach to hit every other ball for them. But to, how are you going to practice in college? This is how you practice in college. So let's help you figure that out now. And that's how I think 
you improve. Of course, you need some solo time or one-on-one time with a coach, of course. But imagine having a, a, a college experience in high school with an army of teammates who can all help you improve. And it's one of the most diverse groups of people you could find. So I love talking about it with families. And it's hard. It is. There's a mindset there that it still exists. And I don't know how to to break it down. And I think your podcast, this conversation, hopefully it helps because I want families to really give these schools a look, not just St. Paul's, of course, call me, please email me, but look at all the boarding schools out there. There's remarkable coaches with remarkable talented teams that everyone should take a look at. And they might be closer to home than they think. We're an hour flight from Philly, so we're north, but we're not that far away. I played in prep school Myself, I played at Pomford, and you and I missed each other when you went to Tabor, but we played against each other in similar leagues. And so I don't want to say I'm biased. I want to say the impact that the boarding school environment had me is, you know, I can direct a lot of who I am today back to those roots very quickly. I echo a lot of what you're saying in terms of just what an experience it can be and also laying the foundation for playing college squash. I think the team aspect is very unique and there's not too many opportunities that you can get to exposure to team squash and the prep schools, you know, do provide that. I had an amazing prep school experience at Tabor. I grew up in not far away in Newport, Rhode Island and played squash with my dad. And I first got a taste of prep school squash when I saw St. George's which who didn't have courts, but they played at Newport Squash Club. I saw Team Squash for the first time. I said, Dad, what's that? We had no plans of me going to boarding school. And we started looking around and did some research and found that there are prep school squash teams all over the place. And Tabor was an amazing place for me, not, not just because of it had squash courts and a squash team, but because I made some really powerful, meaningful relationships with some great mentors and teachers and coaches. And it's funny how it comes back to why I'm at St. Paul's was because of one of those great connections I made with an amazing faculty member, Tim Pratt, who's now, I call him my co-coach. He doesn't like that, but he's my assistant coach here at St. Paul's. And I credit Tabor and the coaches there and the teachers there for why I went on a path of working with youth in an athletic and educational environment. And with that small pause when I was working at Union Boat Club, every job I've ever had involved that those key ingredients of youth development and sport and character development. And so Tabor, I, I give a lot of credit to. And I think that's what you're going to get at any boarding school that you find the right fit is that kind of dedicated teacher, mentor, coach, administrator who choose to live with high school students. They actually sign up for it. And imagine asking your college teachers, like, hey, will you want to live with us? And it's like, absolutely not. But it it works. And fully encompassing environment that just you see these teachers in so many different roles, everything, you know, from being a coach to teacher in the classroom to then an advisor. And like you mentioned, dorm parent of actually living with the students. I mean, it really is a fully full encompassing environment. The colleges, both on the admission side, academically and 
in this example with squash, love these applications that they get from boarding school kids. I was doing the math the other day. Since the year before I got here to now, there are 21 current alumni of St. Paul's who are college squash players. And that at places like Bowdoin, Hamilton, Wesleyan, UPenn, uh, Northwestern, Princeton, Amherst, Georgetown, Swarthmore, I could go on. And they all are at, and Williams, they are all at those schools because of their whole package. Very few of them were sort of that tipped athlete, Ivy League likely letter, you know, admitted, done by Thanksgiving. These are great applicants who the colleges love because they bring so much to the community. And I get texts and photos all the time from these kids. Hey, um, it's Bowdoin versus Hamilton, and there's five St. Paul alumni in the building. And that's my payment right there. That's all I need is knowing that, that they're doing great things at the next level, but they're also competitive squash players. So staying home and not giving a boarding school experience a chance as a young eighth grader or ninth grader because you think you need to stay and train and play junior tournaments. It's, that's not true. I have the data right here in front of me saying you don't need that to end up at some of the best colleges on the planet, and you don't need that to end up playing for some of the best college squash teams on the planet as well. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I I think there's just a a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think squash radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, It would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com slash LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Next, I want to switch into talking a little bit about the state of high school squash in the United States and Interestingly, you have recently been uh, awarded or promoted or given the responsibility of being the executive director of New England Squash, so congratulations. And I want to talk a little bit about what New England Squash, which was formerly NISA, and what that organization is like, and what are some of the milestones that you guys are looking to accomplish down the line? Yeah, so boarding school or prep school squash goes back to I would say around the 1930s, 1940s, prep schools back then didn't play each other in any sports. They just competed with themselves on campus. But there still is a long, rich history of squash in New England boarding schools. 
I remember as a player student at Tabor at the New England Championships, there was always a couple coaches at the desk taking score sheets, updating draws, tallying the point totals. And and it's very similar to how college squash used to be, where the coaches were the driving force of the organization and the association and did everything from the rankings to sponsorships to promoting the game and running the tournaments, as well as still trying to coach their teams. And that's very similar to to the way prep school squash is set up at a much smaller level, obviously. So after who knows how many years, Ned Gallagher, who, who's a longtime choke squash and tennis coach and eventually AD, he was that guy that I was mentioning at the desk. He always did it, and he was doing it for, for decades and making prep school squash great for all of its players and even moving the, the needle of the game a little bit. The, a little history here, you know this, but for the listeners, it was the prep school coaches who voted to change from hardball to softball before colleges, before anyone had really made the switch. And it was that move right in around 93, I think, 93, 94. Yeah. It was that move to, for the, the vote of the prep school te- coaches that made the colleges like, all right, well, we have to switch. And here you go. Here comes all the new buildings and new courts. And so you can credit that back to Ned Gallagher's leadership. He has stopped working with the squash teams at Choate. He's still there. He's no longer the AD. And it was just the right time for him, who'd already done so much to kind of to hand it off to the next crew. And I'm honored to be sort of leading that charge. And I spent a lot of time in the college ranks and involved with the executive committee for college squash and was kind of the early was part of the group that was saying, look, we have to get this out of the hands of the coaches and, and get administrators who aren't the coaches who can make this professional. And so I'm taking a very similar approach. College squash and prep school squash are very different. So it's a different approach, but it's also, all right, let's widen our circle. Let's get some help in here and let's professionalize this. And so I immediately called U.S. squash. It's like, how can you help the, this very important piece of your national program? and it was a very positive phone call. So we're trying to, to do more things that professionalize us in that through U.S. squash, but also little things like updating our rankings once a week. And, and just mm-hmm. even if they're wrong, just at least people are, are hey, it's Sunday night. I'm, I want to click and see how the, the rankings changed since yesterday. Being much better with our communication to our coaching group, which include um, amazing award-winning squash coaches to maybe a history teacher that got handed a squash team and say, Hey, you're coaching squash this season. And they, so they need professional development and, and they, they don't know what a rating is, but they're really passionate and they want to help their kids. So helping them along. So we're working on our communication, we're working on our long-term planning. So people know where our tournaments are going to be and getting them hotel blocks and making things easy to navigate that side of things for the teams. We're working on a logo. We're working on. Uh, I, I started a, a Twitter feed and just trying to get a, a very powerful, big. There's over 90 prep school teams combined, boys and girls. Just trying to get them, get the word out. Like, hey, this is a, a really amazing experience that can mirror a, a college level experience. It sounds as if you're heading in the direction of increasing partnership with U.S. squash. And that was something you were there at the, essentially the beginning at the college squash level. 
of just doing U.S. squash can be a huge resource wheel, and it's what you can do everything from pretty much everything under the sun that the sport would need to let's just start with the rankings. And so it sounds like you're chipping away at, at getting it to the right level that of support that New England squash would need. And 80 teams, 90 teams, that's a lot of work. And I think one thing to put in context is outside of U.S. squash and these other institutions, unlike other sports, they don't get as much support on a state level or regional level. So it really is kind of up to these organizations like New England Squash to to build themselves up. And there's a lot of work that needs to get done. U.S. Squash has done such a great job with their partnerships, and, and College Squash is a great example, but the Professional Squash Association, the Doubles Association, and even NUSEA, the Urban Squash, uh, Squash and Education Alliance, it makes sense to be in line with those amazing organizations and saying, look, we, we want to partner with more with U.S. Squash because NISA and U.S. Squash have done a lot together over the years. But like, hey, it's our view that close collaboration benefits all of us in squash. So let's do this. So I have a question for you. You know, if Ned Gallagher's legacy was really helping to bring the organization closer together, create those lines of communication, but really, as you mentioned, helping transition and being at the forefront of transitioning the sport from hardball to softball, which is monumental, if you could do anything and your legacy would be known as X, what would that be for your role with New England Squash? I would like to lead the association to a place where no matter who is involved with the game, that New England Prep School Squash and and the powerful organization continues after we leave. And I think a great way of doing that is through U.S. Squash. You, You partner up with U.S. Squash, and if they're, if Kevin and their leadership go away and Chris Smith and the amazing people at New England boarding schools go away, there's still a future for New England squash. And it's part of a, a, a big national organization. I would love little things to be kind of on that legacy piece, I guess, is, you know, hey, Chris was the guy that got us a new website. And Chris was the guy that promoted New England squash for all of our schools and made us more accessible to people around the world and got the word out about this really cool experience you can have at at our schools. I would love to grow the New England Prep School League. There are, similar to how college squash grew very quickly, there are a lot of schools that historically are not part of our league schedule or compete in our New England championships, but are members of the New England Boarding School Athletic Association. And their schools like Masters is a great example, or King. And there's just these schools that are starting squash programs in New England that I want them to be a part of this association. And, and I want other schools to add squash to their list of offerings because it's a great sport and they have the resources to start a team. We're seeing more and more of those schools start programs, but you know, I'm, I hope my legacy is continuing to grow the game and, and move it to a, deliver it to more people. One of the ways that you said that you'd like to accomplish that is was touching on technology. And knowing you for all these years, you are certainly an early adopters, as uh, some people get labeled, and also love, uh, or you embrace technology, bringing it into the sport as a way to grow it. 
And you at St. Paul's, when you get the opportunity to incorporate technology at your school, it sounds like you jumped at it. And I just wanted you to give the listeners kind of an example of what the, the facility looked like before and where it is right now. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things for our sport is if you're walking into a building and you don't know a lot about squash, you need info. And there was a time where even at the college squash level, you'd come into Princeton versus Harvard and you had no idea what the score was. You didn't know where your buddy, what court they were playing on. You didn't know the story. You didn't know that it was 4-4 and this last match on means that one team wins, the the other team loses. And so... We've all seen various kinds of scoreboard displays around squash venues, and we've seen a lot of venues that have no display and no, no, not even a whiteboard where you can just write, hey, two to one team score on it. And so we're not good at telling our story to people who don't understand our sport or to people who do understand it. Like, how many times have we been in a venue like, hey, what's the score here? Like, I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I've been at this court. So... Our courts, our building is a, a big L shape, and there's 10 courts here at St. Paul's, and they're beautiful, brand new courts in a in an old building. And if you didn't know your squash history, I know you do, but if you're out there and you didn't know, St. Paul's was the site of the first ever squash courts in the United States. little trivia there. But our building that these beautiful new courts are in is from 1915. And it's an L shape is not a very good shape for being able to see what's going on on all the courts at the same time. So there also were no scoreboards on the individual courts themselves that even just told the story to people who are watching that match or for the players to look up at. I benefited from great timing with work that U.S. Squash was doing, developing their club locker and their, their scoring app coming out right around that same time. And my first ask to the administration at St. Paul's was, can we get some scoreboards in here? And and it's not the LED uh, lights that just say St. Paul's and guest and games one in the score. I'm going to put TVs on the squash court and I'm going to put Apple TVs. I'm going to get iPads for everything. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And, but then when I explained that a basic TV and an iPad and Apple TV is less than a thousand dollars per court, that is way less than that. They were like, okay, what are, what's the other option? It was like, oh, that's 5000 a court. They said, all right, we like this TV iPad idea. Yeah. And so U.S. Squash's software, which is tied right into the players and their profile and the team page, it just it made so much sense. So we put TVs and iPads on the court. We put big venue TVs up that show the overall team score, show what court your buddy's on show that it's three to three prep schools play seven in new england play seven person matches so yeah it's three to three and this last match on this court is decides it all and it also connects the building that is an l you can't stand in the middle like you can at trinity and see seven courts at, at one time so it connects the building it connects people it tells the story so it's amazing and now the word is out that this is a great way of moving our sport forward and helping our sport become more understandable. So venues all over college and high schools and even clubs are putting these systems in and they're wonderful and they're inexpensive. The other thing that I did was put in a wireless microphone sound system because again, I, I can't see, if I'm at court four, I can't see court 10. 
and they can't, certainly can't hear me. So I put in a wireless mic and sound system, which obviously the kids use for cranking tunes, which is awesome. But I can switch drills. I can tell people to come stretch. And, and then I found a piece of software that allows me to share my laptop screen to all of those Apple TV simultaneously. So we don't do any of that. All right, here's the first two drills. Go do it and then come back and I'll tell you your next two drills. So I just put the practice plan up on, on these TVs on each court with one click of the button. So it, it practices are efficient. And what's the next drill is not a question they, I ever hear. So they, they get their, their stretch in, their warm up, they go to their courts and everything's right there for them. So it's, I think, in an in a old building with a lot of character and it's a tight, intimate setting at St. Paul's with these 10 courts. I've kind of connected everyone like we're in a big U shape where we can see each other. But also for anyone that comes into our building, they're going to they're gonna know what's going on. They're going to know where to go find their roommate. And they're also going to know like, oh, okay, I get it. So I know it's growing. Well, it's one of those things that seems like um, such a given, but it's so impactful from what you're describing. And I think technology also gets put in this bucket of sometimes not always accessible. And when you do the comparison, the cost comparison of this really is affordable and it really is the impact that it can have is well worth it. Before we move on to the quick fire segment, there was one last topic I wanted to bring up and I know it's something that hits very close to home and I appreciate your willingness to talk about it because I just think it's such an important story to share and tell and that has to do with your daughter. And this interview was actually scheduled a while ago, and we postponed until now for a variety of reasons. But would you mind sharing your daughter's story? Yeah, absolutely. So last spring, when you and I were, were ready to do this call in April, our then three and a half year old daughter Avery uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. She has acute lymph lymphoblastic leukemia. It's referred to as ALL. It's the most common type of cancer in children, and it it just crushes their immune system. And they're more likely to get infections, and they don't have the protection of these very important B cells, which the cancer goes after. And it's a it's a blood cancer. It starts in the bone marrow, and the leukemia cells grow very fast. And they figured out what it was. We immediately, when diagnosed at, at Dartmouth Hitchcock, the Chad Children's Hospital at Dartmouth Hospital, when they was in the, within 12 hours of diagnosis, she had her first. Uh, dose of chemo. And they told us, we know how to fight this. There's a very high cure rate. It's going to suck. It's a long, slow process, but she will be on that bus to kindergarten. They were talking to us about long-term side effects when she's 60. And this was not a, hey, we have a, a, a different sad story here. It, it was very positive outcomes, but it's still a life-threatening illness. It's still scary as heck. It's emotional it, it was rough. It is rough. It's every day is rough. But it, we've got this remarkable now four and a half year old who's been in treatment since April, and she's crushing it. Like she's doing so well. She's such a positive, outgoing kid. And there's no sense from her that she's sick. She knows she she is sick. She knows the terms. She lost all her hair. We live in a boarding school community with 530 high school students and 
125 faculty and she can't really leave the house right now. Her accounts will bounce back. She's not in a bubble, but she can't go to the dining hall. She can't run around the dorm with, with the kids in my dorm, which she loved doing. But those, those counts are going to bounce back. Like she, you know, if everything goes well, she will be on that bus in September to kindergarten and still be in treatment. She'll be in treatment, and, and they're saying, until June 2019. But the treatments have become less and less. Uh, it used to be once a week. Now it's once a month. She takes daily, uh, daily chemo pills orally. But she's just a, a remarkable kid and strong and funny, and she just lights the place up. So it's very hard to feel like, yes, it's, there's a lot of emotional and sadness and, and negative, and this is horrible, but she doesn't let us think that way because of her personality. And we've made sure that our mantra as a family is as devastating and as hard as it, as it is, and it's very hard on my wife, who stopped working and to to care for her every day, it's hard on her. We've made sure that we're positive. And I think that's the the greatest gift of this situation is we've been able to really kind of light and light up the place with positivity here on this campus, but through social media and websites, just telling Avery's story. I think that's, that's what is the most emotional part of all this is just the outpouring of support and just how much people thank us for sharing her story and, and her daily triumphs and, and even the down stuff when it's not so good. We think it's helping others in, in their lives, and we've really made sure to focus a lot of our efforts because uh, everyone wants to help us, people, the support for us and our family financially with cards and gifts and, and dropping off meals. It's amazing. It, it, but we've really tried to direct that generosity and love for Avery and us to her hospital, the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth, because in all the time that has been spent there, we've met other families who don't uh, live in a boarding school community with, with free food, electricity, and housing. We've met kids who don't have as powerful of a, uh, or as good of a dog diagnosis, or kids who can't leave the hospital like Avery does. We've tried everything we can to drum up support for the hospital and from fundraising for their annual fun run in, in this fall. It wasn't that much fun actually running <laughs> the hills of Hanover, New Hampshire. The really cool thing that just happened in the last week is Pat Kosker, the Bates coach, and Sean Wilkinson at, at Princeton got together and, and organized the college squash-wide toy drive at all of these home venues a couple Saturdays ago. And then they sent their, they sent all these packages up to us of everything they collected. The The Princeton shipment was over 150 pounds of toys, gift cards, stuffed animals, you name it. My alma mater, Hobart College and Hobart and William Smith, they sent a, a big pack of stuff. Pat Kosker has to drive his car <laughs> from Bates to Concord this week to drop all the stuff off. And Avery and her next treatment in, in two weeks is going to drive all this stuff up. And, and she doesn't know it yet, but she's going to be able to present all of these donations to the hospital, to their child life area, to the playroom. Uh, all those gift cards will go to families for gas and Starbucks and Amazon. And, and it's just in a dramatically horrible disease situation, there's so much greatness that is coming out of it. And that's the Avery story. And, and someone 
when she was first diagnosed, coined the phrase bravery. So team bravery is kind of the the battle cry. And, and I hope it is inspiring to everyone out there to get behind their local children's hospital and get behind trying to cure this childhood cancer, which is the the leading cause of, of death and by disease among children in the United States. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. They know how to fight it. They really do in most of these cases. But uh, there's 3,000 kids this year that will be diagnosed with ALL leukemia, and, and all of those families need as much support and love as people can give them. Seeing what both Avery's journey and I think Team Bravery has done online and social media, it really is inspirational. I've seen a few videos and it really chokes me up and I've shared it with friends and family. And one that stands out is just when the lacrosse, I believe those girls of lacrosse team stopped by and sang to, uh, to Avery. And just what a special moment sharing her story and, and doing that on social media. And it's just really touching. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, there's so many of those stories from these remarkable students at St. Paul's, and I think tying this back to our original discussion, I think that's what any residential community like ours here is going to be full of people that care and love and, and want to help one another, and that's the ultimate lesson we are trying to teach these high school students who are very talented in, in everything, but this is real life learning as it happens, and as horrible and pissed off as I am that Avery has to go through this and as pissed off I am that my wife has to take the the full brunt of, of this assault, I think there's a great story that high school age kids are learning in <laughs> in this environment about like, hey, this stuff, it happens and this is how you respond to it. And those stories of kids stopping by and singing songs, I mean, it happens almost daily. The The cards that they drop off. The, the toys, the, the care packages that students that I don't even, you know, get to work with necessarily on campus that I don't really know all that well, who I don't think know Avery, but they put something together and send it over and it lights up her life. These schools, St. Paul's in this specific example, are, are full of um, amazing role models for my kids and, and my oldest kid is Colin, who's eight and a half and he's a great big brother for Avery, but there's remarkable role models here for my kids. And I think that something like this with cancer, regardless of if it's a, a breast cancer or a adult or childhood cancer, I think the studies show that survival rates are dramatically improved when the community is there to support the the family. And talk about cure, you know, kicking this cancer's ass. The community that I'm in here at St. Paul's, the squash community, which showed up in, in huge numbers. Old teammates of mine, kids that I recruited to to Harvard, kids that I recruited to Harvard didn't go to Harvard. Like the donations were coming in, former coaches. The squash community is a powerful, really caring community full of amazing people. And and once they heard of, of Avery and the struggle that she's gone through, they showed up and I'm very touched and honored to be part of such a remarkable community like the squash world that we live in. I completely agree. And community is a big theme on this podcast. And it's great to have the squash and your local community come out and, and help. Question, you mentioned if people did want to help and whether it's team bravery or locally, how could someone go about doing that? I 
of course, want to direct things to Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, Chad, and or chadkids.org. And that's the hospital that Avery's getting treatment at, and she loves going to the hospital. And like, does that sound like who loves going to the hospital? But she does, and it's because the care that she gets there is so remarkable, and the, the people there, the social workers, the nutritionists, the doctors, everyone, the nurses, they're awesome. So, yes, like big plug to, to chadkids.org. But I, I think it's important to to be a powerful force in your community and get around someone locally that that needs this same kind of love and support that we're getting here. So I, I think looking at some resources, unfortunately, these stories are too common. We all have been affected by cancer and, and disease all too often. And so I, I don't think it'd be very hard to find local community members that need help, but there's national associations, Leukemia Society and that you could go to and, and find local chapters or hospitals, but I think you can get behind the research as well in trying to you know fight these cancers if there isn't someone that you know that you want to try to support locally. But there's so much you can do. You can drop off meals for families who are dealing with with stuff like this. You could send you can send gifts. You can send Avery's big thing is uh, she loves going to the post office here. It's like one of the secret, <laughs> you know, the easy access places she can go with mom. And don't everyone start sending her letters, but like she, she gets a lot, but she just getting a card drawn by someone somewhere uh, who she doesn't even know. She loves us reading those to her every day. I think we had to put a stop on them a little while ago. It's got too much. But <laughs> so forget I said that. But yeah, there's, uh, I think it's obvious people are, people can find a lot of local organizations that need support around their community. And, and I think that's what I've learned is we're better at helping Avery fight this because we have people behind us pushing us and, and keeping us going. And that's the path I would love to help people try to, to, to get on. Well, I appreciate your, your willingness to share Avery's story with the uh, team bravery. And like I said, she really is inspiration for all of us and we can't, we're rooting for her recovery and keep us posted on her journey. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for that and, and give me an opportunity to talk about that. I'm surprised I held it together. Well, to close out this segment, we usually do a quick fire round. We just have a few questions we ask each guest. Let's go. Do you have a favorite movie and or documentary? Absolutely. Top Gun, 1986. It's my go-to. My wife doesn't know why, even these many years later, why I always say that. But yeah, Top Gun. And I'm very excited that Top Gun 2 is coming out. It's in the works. I don't know when it's coming out, but something's coming. And rumor has it that uh, Goose's son might be now flying jets. So. Well, I was going to say, I, I, that's definitely up there for me. And I still get a little choked up every time uh, Goose has his accident. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, sad. it's a good one. Very sad. Yeah. What is something, and it can be either an activity or something physical, that gives you disproportionate happiness? I have to say fishing. I love it. I always have. I, I'm able to do a, a lot more now. St. Paul's is, is blessed with being surrounded by an amazing body of water that is very healthy with fish. But also, it's an activity that Avery and I, this summer, were able to do a, a lot and it and allowed her to get out of the house. So I think I could probably answer some story or tell some story about Avery it's with all these questions you probably will ask me. But yeah, I love fishing. Anytime I I go somewhere new, I I just stop in a, a tackle shop if I can find one and just see what secrets they have and how they do things. And 
I think uh, I'm probably a kind of a copycat fisherman. I don't really have the skills myself to figure out what the fish are doing in a body of water, but I'll ask someone, I'll get a tip and, and I'll just do that. <laughs> well, that's the way to do it. Next question is, what is an inspiring talk or you know piece of content on the web that would be really easy to share with people? Yeah. So again, I think I said I could probably answer Avery with a lot of these a lot of That's these fine. questions. There's two that jump to mind and, and they're 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 not about Avery, but they're connected. There was a, a girl from New Bedford, Massachusetts, who was cured of leukemia, the same leukemia that Avery has, who beat it and the Boston Bruins honored her pregame. She got to do the puck drop. And so Dano Charles, you know, seven seven feet tall on skates, hockey player, holding this girl's hand out to center ice. And she drops the puck, takes some pictures. And I remember watching it on a flight to the West Coast and just like complete, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm now bawling on the plane. The people next to me are like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> but it was inspirational because it was so touching to, to, and to see the, a little girl with these big hockey players and and then Brad Marchand who's probably like one of the dirtiest players in the NHL like hugs her as she comes off the ice and uh, oh. like that made me cry more like <laughs> so I think that's just a touching story and, and a great video to share and and then there's another one I think down at at Iowa the, the football stadium is right next to or maybe Iowa State right next to the children's hospital at the university and they have a tradition there where the the crowd and the the teams turn and wave to all the kids in the window of the children's hospital. So again, it, you can see where my brain's at, connected to things that Avery <laughs> is going through. But there's such great response out there in this world for kids who who through sport and stories like that are inspirational for everyone. It will make you cry if you see these videos. Definitely search it and. If anyone's listening, they can get Avery and I to the Super Bowl. Avery's available for the Patriots <laughs> pregame uh, this Sunday. Or, you know, <laughs> Just an easy plug. She will, like she will fire the Patriots up. Yeah. yeah. Last question is, if there are any books you could recommend? Yeah. Uh, I just was given this book just recently, The Boys in the Boat by Daniel Brown, Daniel James Brown. It's about the... Berlin 1936, the Olympic finals of the crew race, the eight rowing race. And the American boat is full of kids from working class kids who got to the Olympics by beating out all of the elite East Coast crew shells and, and teams and got to to the Olympic finals. And then there's not a spoiler. I mean, they won, right? You don't need to... So like they won, but the the book is so great because it it is all about personal struggle and triumph and you know that's the spirit of that of the America in that time frame. But there's it inner works each chapter kind of moves in and out of like what was going on with Hitler and but there's also some there's getting kids to to kind of beat all the odds in in sport, but also sending Hitler away. So it, it's a great, it's a great read, especially if you're involved in, in coaching. I think there's a lot of stuff that you can bring to your teams. That does sound really interesting. And I feel like perhaps another listener or sorry, a guest might've said that, or I just heard it recently, but either way, yep. it sounds like an exciting book to explore. 
Well, good, I got uh, it. Right. I got it right then. <laughs> I picked a good one. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you for your time today and for everything that you do within the sport. And you've certainly impacted so many kids' lives for the better, and continue to help grow the sport at so many different levels. So, thank you for all you do and for sharing your story about Avery and Team Bravery and all of your time today. So, thank you so much. And thank you, Connor. I, you mentioned earlier, like we go way back, and you've done remarkable things for the sport from your days at, at Denison to U.S. Squash to to what you're doing now. And you've given me opportunity over the years of continuing to pour my love into things like the U.S. World Juniors and the U.S. Open and just being involved with squash in other ways. So thank you for everything you've done for me, but mostly for what you've done for this sport. You've really done a lot and squash radio is is an awesome way to highlight other stories out there but you should let someone do a guest interview of you someday because you deserve to get your story out there more i think i'm better on this side of the mic but uh, (laughs) i appreciate it well thank you very much chris and we'll let you get off to all of your duties and thank you so much thanks connor chris part of the last portion that we were talking about in this interview which we'd love to get a update on is with your daughter, Avery, and you were really so thoughtful in sharing your experience at the time, but let's give a listener an update on how Avery is doing today. Yeah. So at the time of that interview, Avery was five, she's now eight and she's completely done with treatment. They don't say cancer free for a while, but she has done amazing. She has all of her hair back. She is in third grade. She is just doing really, really well. And that type of leukemia diagnosis was one that they said at the time, we know how to get this. This is going to suck, but this is one that has a very high cure rate and everything played out as they said. And it was tough in there during those treatment years but so much positive and amazing things have happened since you and I first spoke about this. Well, I know really Team Bravery turned into a whole movement unto itself, and her story inspired so many people to really support her. But I think also you guys were very mindful of the bringing awareness to uh, cancer and leukemia overall. So there's a laundry list of highlights to touch on, but why don't you just list a few that kind of made the Smith household smile? <laughs> yeah, it was certainly the big highlight for the family was the Make-A-Wish announcement that Avery and her brother Colin and my wife and I got to go to Disney World and give kids the world, which is the village that all the Make-A-Wish kids from around the world stay at. And it wasn't actually just Disney World. It was Universal and SeaWorld and any place that you wanted to go down there, they got us tickets for. But it was an amazing experience from limo picking us up, front row seats on the airplane, just like we felt like um, kings and queens and <laughs> princesses and princes. I mean, it was amazing. We we really had an awesome trip. But again, it introduced us to another organization that cares so much for sick families from around the world that it's an, it became another place. Give kids the world. It became another place that 
added to the team bravery list of things that we are going to draw support and awareness to. So, you know, everyone thinks it's Disney make a wish trip. It's, it's all Disney. It's actually give kids the world village, which is the one that is powering those trips. And then they get the tickets to Disney and universal, et cetera, but you stay at this village and just the village itself is a mini amusement park. And so that was a, a big highlight. Another one we're talking on the morning of game two of the Red Sox playoff run tonight, but Avery threw out the first pitch at Fenway Park a few years ago and talk about an emotional experience as a lifelong Red Sox fan to see your kid throwing out the first pitch at Fenway. It was always a dream of mine seeing, you know, Paul Asiante year after year throwing out the first pitch for winning uh, the college national championships and Avery threw a, threw a, a little outside strike to, uh, <laughs> to Brock Holt, who has became a big time advocate for childhood cancers and in Boston now in Texas, where he plays now other things, which are just as emotional and an amazing, just being part of her hospital's annual fun run. It's a hero run where everyone dresses up in different superhero costumes and it's in Hanover. So the Dartmouth community is out in full force and just being a big part of that. And sort of the lead hero was, was her role one year. And again, giving us opportunity to raise awareness and money for the local childhood cancer unit of a hospital here in New Hampshire, which serves many kids from the region. Another great event was squash cancer, which was run actually as well out of Dartmouth and just giving Avery an opportunity to go up and say a few words to people, which um, she's become very good at kind of speaking in front of groups, but again, allowing us to try to raise some money for an important organization. The other piece here is Caitlin has been in the, the sort of medical research world her entire professional life, and she stopped working when Avery got sick so she could take care of Avery. And now she's been asked multiple times by the state of New Hampshire to come in and speak to various research groups and advocate groups. And, you know, she was introduced by the governor in one of these big Zooms a few months wow. ago. So she's really a, an amazing resource now with her medical background and research background and as a mom who's experienced having to care for a kid uh, who's ill. And so she's just now well-versed to be uh, a huge help to research in the state of New Hampshire and why childhood cancer is, is happening and how to advocate for families and what support do families need from the state where they, they think they're supporting families, but then they realize, well, wait, we didn't think about, you know, the, you know, gas to the hospitals and, mm -hmm. you know, how can we help families more? than we are. So she's now taken this, another path of helping others. And, and so many people came out and helped us. And it's so important for us to do the same and give back and, but also try to make sure that we find a way to make a 90% curable cancer, make, you know, make it a hundred percent. We did meet families that 
didn't have the success that Avery had with a similar illness that were getting treatment at the same hospital. So these things can go south and it's important that we just keep fighting and raising money and uh, doing everything we can. That is, I mean, it's just a lot that you and your family have gone through. And I, I love that you guys are tackling this from contributing towards making, increasing the awareness of this for other families. When Avery, who's still so young, how does she process this overall experience? Like, what is her outlook? Yeah, I, I hope that it's the first pitch and the speed pass at Disney to get that she got to cut the line that was two hours long and get walk right into the hottest ride down there. I hope that's what she remembers. But I also think that because of the the way the social workers and the nurses and the doctors, the the experience going to Children's Hospital at Dartmouth Hitchcock, it was such a positive experience. I don't think she's going to be like years from now thinking how bad that was. She enjoyed going to the hospital and she was going a lot, right? And the playrooms and the the friendly faces and the visits from other people who would just come and hang out with her when she was getting her treatment. I don't think she's going to remember that as a negative thing. I mean, maybe only by pictures will she remember that she lost her hair at, at four years old. And you know, I don't think she'll remember the nausea and the muscle aches and the night sweats. I don't think she'll remember those. I hope not. Right. And I think that's our job is to, to make things such a positive thing, but you also can't hide that. That was her experience. And and it's going to write into her code a little bit. And if it makes her tougher and more resilient, and maybe it gives her some bad memories here and there, but that's okay too, because that's what pushes us forward. That's what makes us better by having those experiences and coming out stronger on the other end. But I also think that she will remember her experience with the Middlebury field hockey team, which a student from St. Paul's who had become close with Avery went off to Middlebury and be, you know, joined their field hockey team. And when Avery was in treatment, we were getting photos that they're wearing ribbons on their shoes in honor of Avery. And it, she couldn't, Avery couldn't go visit the team. And then that year they won the national title. So Avery was getting hats and all these cards from the national champion Middlebury field hockey team. But then the next year, we were Avery was cleared to, to leave the house, and we went up to Middlebury, and they had a big pregame ceremony and honored not just Avery, but anyone in the Middlebury community that had some sort of childhood ailment and had this real big special experience out on the field of the national champion Middlebury field hockey team. But the and, and we've done that a few times now, and that team has rattled off three straight national championships, and they're ranked number one in the country right now. And those are the things that I hope Avery remembers, is through a crappy situation, look at how wonderful our world is, and look at how people respond to, to help people get through that. As we close out, is there any recommendation or ask that you would have for our listeners? Yeah, I think in our original interview, we talked about finding the local childhood cancer hospital, finding the leukemia societies in your area, 
and getting behind those because we've learned so much about how they support not just research, but the families in in their care and in who are going through this. And we would get so much just little, you know, gas cards and Dunkin' Donuts cards and just things that you don't realize are necessary, right? <laughs> but they do so much to help battle this. But I really recommend, and I've already talked about this, but look up Give Kids the World down in Orlando. It is where every wish kid goes from around the world that gets a, a Disney experience. And, and that organization is, is, it's remarkable what happens down there. So definitely look up that and it's all volunteer driven and it's a wonderful place, but that would be my target. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. And thanks for sharing your story, your experience, and we look forward to staying in touch. Yeah. Thank you again, Connor. And three and a half years later, or whatever it was, <laughs> your podcast is my number one download and my favorite thing to listen to. And it's exciting that I, I'm a part of it again, but I thank you for all you continue to do for the personalities and the sport and the people involved with our sport because i think these stories are also are special and, and make squash what it is and thank you for continuing to highlight these awesome stories thanks chris i appreciate it well thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on squash radio we hope you enjoyed this latest episode but before you leave we just have one quick last message as you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.